brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. This is normally, right, the uh, the part of the podcast, the opening of the podcast, where I say softrep.com, on time, on target, but I guess I can't say that anymore, because if you've been following, and by the way, I've been getting like texts from friends, like, what's up with this? The website is now NewsRep, and softrep.com is being redirected to thenewsrep.com. Uh, a lot of people are panicking about this. It's the same guys. It's us, Hurricane Media, as we've always been. Um, you know, Jack Murphy, Brandon Webb, all of the gang that you know, Alex Hollings. However, if you listen back to the show that Brandon Webb was on recently, he discusses this a little bit more in detail at some point. And uh, yeah, we're just going to be covering more things. You know, financial news, for one, is going to be a bigger part of the website. Um, but we've always branched off and not just done special operations stuff, and we've continued to do so. However, this show is still primarily going to be focused on that. We do bring other guests on. I mean, last episode we had Hoist Gracie on, uh, but that's nothing new. The, the show is still going to remain the same, and it's still going to be Soft Rep Radio, which I'm proud of. You know, I think that we've we've gained a great uh, respect in the podcast community. Uh, for people who check out the podcast twice each week and, and have been doing so for the past five plus years, past five years that I've been on. Um, so I guess this brings a new era where I take out the dot com and I just say soft rep radio. So from now on, soft rep radio on time, on target. On that note, I may have to do some new imaging because I know at the very end, the great voice actor, Kara O'Brien, says softrep.com. Also mentions Brandon's uh, podcast, The Power of Thought, which is still up for your enjoyment, but it's on a hiatus. Um, we basically did it as a series, and we may bring it back at some point, but I'd like to redo that. Um, I may even redo the intro because I had to cut part of that out. We had another name in there, and you know, for a while now, it's just been myself and Jack Murphy, so I might redo it to say... Uh, Jack Murphy or Army Ranger and Green Beret Jack Murphy and Ian Scotto. And, or if it's not too douchey in, your, in the opinion of you guys, I may have it say uh, New York Festival's award-winning radio producer Ian Scotto, which is a story in itself, all right? Because I've been doing radio since 2006, and you want to know what I won an award for? I won an award when I was Senator Bill Bradley's producer over at SiriusXM for American Voices, and we had Charlie Rose on for an episode. And I can't even say I booked Charlie Rose. I was not the one who booked Charlie Rose. The executive producer, Devorah Clark, booked Charlie Rose. 
And here was my contribution to that show uh, for this special we did interviewing Charlie Rose or Senator Bill Bradley interviewing Charlie Rose. I picked up the phone. I dialed Charlie Rose and I said to him, sir, can you please take it off speakerphone? And he said, do you mean to tell me I'm going to have to be holding the phone uh, up to my ear for this entire interview? And I was like, yes. He was just like, all right. And then I potted up his level on the board. We did a great show. We submitted that show to New York festivals, and I somehow won an award. So I've, I've done many things in radio that I've not won an award for, but uh, talking to Charlie Rose for maybe a good 10 seconds and potting up his level on the mixing board, I won an award. And it's up on my wall, and I'm proud of that award. And because of that, I could call myself award uh, New York Festival's award-winning radio producer. So that's the story behind that, if you happen to be wondering, which most of you are not but I've never really relayed that story on the podcast. Uh, Getting into what we're actually going to be doing this episode, uh, we have L. Christian Bustler, or Chris, um, who's a former Marine Corps gunnery sergeant coming on. He wrote a book called No Tougher Duty, No Greater Honor, a memoir of a mortuary affairs Marine, self-published entirely. I was speaking with him last night. I actually just got this book delivered to the studio, I didn't really know much about it, um, but I, I actually had an open slot, so I called up Chris, and I was like, hey, you want to come on? And we talked a little bit, and it seems like he did some really unique things. This is a very different book from most memoirs, and you'll see why once uh, we get into it with him, but I'm excited to have him on. Um, Chris just seems like a great guy, and you know, it, it, it takes a lot to put out a book completely on your own, no publisher behind you. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, I should write something. I should put it out. But uh, not everybody has the personal endurance, you know, because working a job, doing other things. In Chris's uh, case, having kids and a wife and duties and stuff like that to actually go through with it and put out their book. And more guys should be doing it. So uh, I'm excited to speak with him. No video this episode. Um, I got into the studio and we're having a few camera issues. Uh, and I, I wish I had Kirill here every day because he knows all of that stuff a lot better than me. Shout out to Kirill. And I know that we're moving next door in the same place, but literally next door and in, in, on the same floor to a larger space. So when, he, when we get in there, I'll probably have Kirill come back in set up this equipment with me for the millionth time <laughs> and uh hopefully you know we'll have video and all of that set up and good to go so just audio for this but if you haven't checked out the recent video subscribe to the youtube channel the soft rep channel on youtube and with that as i let you guys know every show and i hope that you take note and more of you are becoming members there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches. And that, of course, is Crate Club. I'm looking very forward, as I've been talking about the past few episodes, to the future collaboration we're doing with NFW Watches. We're going to have an exclusive watch for Crate Club members, uh, premium tier members. That's coming very soon. We have different tiers of membership, depending on how prepared you want to be. Gift options are available as well, and you can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. For you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've just partnered with Kuna. Kuna has a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog every month, 
of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and they not only promote a healthy diet, but they also promote being active with your dog. So whether we're talking a pit bull or a chihuahua, this is just what you're looking for. doesn't matter the size of the dog. You can see all of that at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog is going to appreciate it as well, of course. And that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. Last, as a reminder for those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel. The Spec Ops channel is our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch all of that content and all the uh, inside the team rooms, all that cool stuff, by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel, and that's at specopschannel.com, and take advantage of a limited-time offer of 50% off your membership. That's only $4.99 a month. And uh, go to the App Store. I I don't know if it's called something different on the Android, but whether you have an iPhone or Android, and just look up the Spec Ops Channel app, and you'll get to watch all that content on your phone if you're a member. So Spec Ops Channel, the app, developed by Chris. Shout out to Chris. So as promised on the podcast for the first time, Chris, or L. Christian Bustler, uh, who's a retired Marine Corps gunnery sergeant, uh, and as I was saying in the intro, I just received this book earlier this week, so I haven't read the whole thing. I got a chance to read some of it. It's really well done and got to speak to you last night as we were kind of going over things. And like yep. I said, it's just it's cool to see that you took the initiative and self-published this or winning awards, getting great reviews. Um, so an honor to have you on, man. Well, thank you so much, man. I, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. This is uh, this is really cool. Thank you so much for the invite to come on. Yeah, for sure, man. So I, I think the first thing that would be great to get to is you were telling me the motivation for this book, and it wasn't really something like, you know, some, some people are like ready to write a book immediately as they leave the military, and that wasn't the case for you. So uh, if you want to get into the story behind that, I think it's really, it's an interesting one. Absolutely. Um, my job over there, it was, I was a mortuary affairs Marine. So basically what that means is that I'm the guy who, who, uh, went outside the wire and, uh, whenever they needed, uh, if the unit couldn't recover their remains or if the unit was engaged in combat, um, we would go out and find the remains on the scene, um, and bring them back to our base, process those remains, um, and send them home. And what that means is that we were supposed to go through their pockets and annotate all the wounds suffered and send them back home. Um, and so after three deployments, two uh, under that capacity and one in, in with being attached to an infantry battalion, um, three consecutive years, I come back home and I, I was a little bit lost in, in my PTSD. Uh, I was a reservist, so I ended up coming home and I found out that I couldn't work at my my job at the post office anymore, just because of, of all the flashbacks I was having during when I was delivering the mail, a bad thing about delivering mail in the middle of a cities when you're delivering mail and it's summertime in there and they're, um, 
roofing, they have this, uh, they'll have this pop, 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 pop when they're putting all the shingles down. And so I was having uh, problems with that. And then I couldn't have a, a good night's sleep. I would spend literally days awake um, and I would drink myself, try to drink myself to sleep. And it was seven days a week. Mm. So um, I left the, the post office. Uh, I was a regular at the VA. I was going in five days a week. I was taking handfuls of meds, trying to get some sleep and, and try to find some normalcy in it. And I was really at my wit's end. And uh, I, I, had, I got to a point with my PTSD. It got so bad that um, I really didn't care if I lived or died. Uh, it, it just, it, it was every thought in my mind. I was so desperate for sleep. I was so sick of thinking that place, thinking of that place. So, much and um, I ran into a Vietnam War veteran who uh, pretty much said, "I know what you need." And and I was like, "Okay, what do I need?" And he goes, "You can look in. Anybody can look into your eyes and see where you're at. You know, you can't. Get, you know, you can't barely function. You're basically you're a functional alcoholic. Um, what you need to do is to take your stories and you need to write them down." And at first I was like, okay, whatever. This is a bunch of BS, you know, okay, whatever. Um, and he goes, believe me, it works. And so uh, and it was a moment where I ended up waking up from a nightmare again. And, and I didn't know what to do with my, uh, my, you know, time or anything. So I ended and, up and just I going another. Say, in, in all of this, you're a married guy with kids in the middle of all right, this, right? Right, so. right. Um, and I was in the middle of, of, uh, uh, you know, being married and, and all that stuff. And I'm trying to struggle to keep the, everything together. My wife was thinking about uh, picking up and leaving and, and uh, everything was falling apart around me. So whenever I woke up from nightmares, I just went out to the garage. I ended up smoking some cigarettes, drinking, uh, drinking another 12 pack. Hopefully it would be able to knock out the, the, the dreams and stuff where I can go back to sleep. But that particular night I end up saying, screw it. Let's pull out the computer and let's start writing. I mean, this guy, says it works. Why not? You know, everything else I've been trying hasn't been working. So I tried it. And, um, a, a couple of days later I ended up burning it. And after that I tried it again and then burning it. And, and so in the very beginning, it was, it was just trying to get a handle of what I was doing with my life. Um, you know, trying to find some, um, anything, anything, you know, I was trying to reach out and grasp anything that would help me through, my, my, my sleepless nights and stuff, my nightmares and stuff. Um, so eventually after years and years of burning it and writing it and burning it, I ended up, uh, coming up with the ideas like, what the hell? Um, I've got 13 stories here that I've been working on relentlessly for all these years. Let's try to figure out and try to write a book. Um, there's nobody else who's ever written a book about mortuary affairs operations and combat. It doesn't matter what war, it doesn't matter uh, when, it, nobody else has ever done that. Yeah. So I figured, hey, this is a side of war that nobody knows about, and um, why not try to cross a, uh, a bucket list uh, list off of the thing, you know, and, and try, to, try to get it out. And so about four years ago, I ended up saying, screw it, let's go ahead and try it. And so I taught myself how to write. And I taught myself, uh, you know, how to, how to really get into explaining what it was like to be in my situations, um, to wear all these different hats of being a mortuary affairs Marine, um, to be on the scenes of, of all these things, what I was thinking of every night. And so far, 
Um, I when I published it last year, I'm self-published, I'm self-marketing it at all. And so as of right now, I, I've won the uh, a finalist award um, through Next Generation Indie Book Awards. Uh, I have a five-star average on, on Amazon. And um, I'm in for a couple. I'm on a long list for Chance of Clears uh, book contest. And so I'll find out here September 1st if I get that one and readers' favorites. But, yeah, everything's been fantastic ever since then. Uh, I, I, I decided to, to write the book in honor of the guys that we had lost over, over in Iraq, the guys that we had processed, um, and also the, to the guys who, who did the job. Because it is uh, previously, it's been an unknown job. Yeah. And so I thought that why not? Why yeah. not try to honor these guys? And, and we'll get into the history of all that. And, and actually, the cover kind of shows something that, that you did that was a very unique job. Um, but before yeah. we do, so just from reading the beginning of this book, it's, it's fair to say, I believe you are not a guy who joined the Marines right out of high school. Like so many guys we've had on the show before you were working a job and this was something you decided to do slightly later on in life. Right. Oh, uh, no, actually I joined the Marine uh, reserves right out of high school. So you were working um, at the post office while you were in high school or. No, no, I was, uh, I graduated high school in 1992. I, uh, went straight into the Marine Corps reserves and I worked a bunch of odd and end jobs um, on the civilian side, but I ended up, uh, with my Marine Corps experience, I, I mean, I joined up the, this company called the MP company, Charlie in Dayton, Ohio. And at the time they were the only, um, they only had a platoon experimental platoon of mortuary fairs back then were called grace platoon. And, um, and we were the only ones in the entire Marine Corps. So back when I, at the very beginning of the book, I was at work at my civilian job delivering mail when my postal supervisor comes up and says, Hey, Chris, uh, the Marine unit just called looking for you and they're, they're wanting you to, to give them a call back. And so I called up my, my, my unit and say, Hey, what's going on? And, and they were like, Hey, you need to report in the day after Christmas, which was four days later. And so that's where I start the book up out from there. But yeah, I joined up right after high school. And because I grew up in the military, my dad was in the Air Force. I was born, uh, I was born right outside of McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey. Um, I, I spent my whole life traveling, uh, seven years in Japan, been through Thailand, Philippines, um, all over the United States before we ended up settling down in Ohio when he got out of, of the uh, Air Force. And so I figured since I spent my whole childhood traveling, I wanted to still serve, but I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to be more stationary. Um, just like a lot of other guys, when you're in high school, you have that high school girlfriend, you know, convince you to, to stay home. And so, yeah, I listened to my high school girlfriend. And by the time I got out of of all my uh, boot camp and training and came home, she was already gone. So, <laughs> and, and <laughs> so yet, even, lovey, yeah. even with your father's background, from what I've read so far, he wasn't exactly thrilled that you were joining the Corps. Oh, no, no. Um, I, I call myself, I describe myself uh, as a direct product of the Vietnam War. Um, my dad was stationed over in Thailand um, during, for three years the three different tours and it's where he met and married my mom. But his job was supposed to be fueling up airplanes and, and making napalm. And so 
working out there on the flight line, he told me the day that I graduated. And he also told me on that when when we got that phone call that he saw a lot of a lot of uh, Marines coming home uh, in body bags. He said he, he said that he saw a lot of the uh, the black bags being loaded up on the on the on the airplanes, and he didn't want me to become one of them. Mm-hmm. So do whatever it takes for you to get home and keep your fucking head down. And so he knew exactly what I was getting into. Um, he grew up uh, listening to the stories. Uh, his father ended up, uh, he was a, um, fought through the Philippines with General MacArthur in World War II. Uh, got a granduncle who's 97 years old, uh, just turned 97, and uh, he landed on Omaha Beach, fought his way to Bastogne. Um, so he, I spent my entire childhood, he, he spent his entire childhood listening to it, and we could trace our lineage all the way back to the Civil War. So military service was was always a big thing in our family but he knew firsthand uh how horrible war is mm-hmm. and and it was really kicked him in the stomach to to know that i was going to war um and especially when they were talking about saddam hussein having weapons of mass destruction too uh, at the time so yeah it was uh it was a real emotional moment when when we found out that i was getting deployed so in terms of what you actually did, I don't think we've ever had a guy who's been involved in mortuary affairs on the show. I'm almost positive of it. How is that something that you get into? I would think it's like the last thing that someone would want to choose and be like, this, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like you're, 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 you're almost right. You're, you're almost guaranteed to get PTSD issues, which is the last thing that you want. You're exactly right. You know, I ended up joining as an 0311 rifle. Um, I figured if I'm going to go in the Marine Corps, uh, I, I don't want to be welding. I don't want to, you know, build things. I want to go in and blow things up and put holes in things. You know, I wanted to join, um, for the reasons why I was watching all the movies when I was growing up and I wanted to do that kind of stuff and go out and shoot some cool guns and stuff. And so, um, at the time, the only unit that was close to me that accepted 0311s was Dayton, Ohio. And, and it had, they said it had a small little detachment of, of uh, mostly grunts. It had mostly uh, 0311s, 0331s, we were machine gunners. And um, I figured, why not? Uh, the closest other unit would be, to, would be the Columbus unit. And I had a really crappy car at the time, and I figured, this is so close to my house, why not? Um, and, and believe me, when they first told me that what we were supposed to do, uh, I, I was not happy at all about it. <laughs> so this was <laughs> by I no figured, means something that you said, I, like that you set out to do at, at some point. No, no, it was. They, I didn't tell me until I checked into the unit. Wow. And I was like, oh, well, shit, I don't want to do this. Which, but by the way, gives, to give you some car. perspective on joining the military because of the fact that. You know, on this show and stuff that has been written on the site, we don't go out of our way to make the military look glamorous. You know, we'll talk about the the positives right. and negatives. And I know that sometimes you're given the impression of like whatever it is you want to do, whatever your strong suit. Oh, we'll put you. You know, we'll we'll, we'll put you in a job that that fits the career path you want. So, from what you're saying. This is not at all the path that you were hoping no. to fulfill. <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into until I got, until that first day I checked in. And believe me, I, I was not happy about it. Um, but yeah, I figured, I, I looked at it this way. We just got out of the Gulf War. 
and we weren't going to get activated. I didn't think we were going to go in and see any kind of combat anytime soon. So I figured, hey, this is close to my house. Um, I already like the guys here. Uh, and and why not? You know, why not just drive up 20 minutes up the road instead of, you know, driving an hour or some change to go out to Columbus? And so I, I ended up sticking with the unit. And uh, as the years progressed on, we didn't, uh, you know, we had things like Somalia pop up or Bosnia pop up, uh, um, but nothing, nothing serious where they were saying, yes, you better prepare yourselves. Not until after 9-11. Got you. And, and so at that point, though, what was running through your head with the, with the duty that you had to fulfill? Um, 9-11, really, we were just chomping at the bit to get into combat. We didn't care. We didn't care what it was. Uh, we figured the war was going to be super quick, like how it was in the Gulf war, mm-hmm. uh, get in, get out and, 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 you know, kick some ass. But we had no idea that, that Afghanistan was going to last as long. But, you know, when we started sending troops in Afghanistan, we we're watching on TV and we're figuring, okay, we're going to get our call anytime soon. We're the only mortar affairs unit in the entire Marine Corps. So um, I, uh, pretty much a year came and passed, and, and we we're like, okay, well, we're not getting activated, so nothing else is going on. Um, it wasn't until the summer of 2002 when we had – uh, the 26th uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit, Special Operations Capable, came into over here at Dayton, Ohio, and they were staying at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and they were practicing uh, doing um, helicopter raids into uh, a bunch of ban- abandoned buildings. And back then, all the local newspapers had said, "Hey, we're practicing for Baghdad. We're practicing for Iraq," and that was the, really the first clue that we got that, "Hey, if we're going to go." to anywhere we're going to go to iraq um and so we didn't expect to get called anytime soon and it was a real surprise that we did um when i got my phone call in december of 2002 gotcha and and i'm just wondering from there like how, how did everything come to play out um all right. When we first got this, this job here is a basically it was archaic at the time. We were working off of World War II manuals. Wow. Uh, these manual, yeah, these manuals have not never been updated ever since they left left uh, World War II. Um, so basically, all the diagrams that were in there were based upon. Uh, airplanes that had propellers. Um, basically, they're not going to when they crash. They're not going to be at a high speed crash. They're 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 still going to be in a in main pieces. Like here's the fuselage. Here's here's the engine. That kind of stuff. So um, we what they wanted us to do was they wanted us to take this World War II style manual and change it to where it's applicable to modern standards, modern fighting styles. And they pretty much gave us the the idea that that we need to be able to do this on the fly, where you, if you have to, you have to be able to work on it in the back of a vehicle or on the side of the road. And so we had to take all the, the cut the, all the fat, all the stuff. Basically, they said we're not going to be building any graves over there, so you can throw all that out the window. 
Um, so the basic idea of graves registrations that the, the World War II manual had talked about, basically building graves like you see over in Normandy and different World War II battle sites, he says, we're not going to be doing that. So w- everything is still going to be, uh, if, the, if anybody gets killed, it'll still be um, removed and sent back home uh, through an airplane. And send them, but uh, we, need to, we need to figure this out of how you can take it, what you need to do and work it in, in, in a very fluid battlefield. Mm-hmm. So we spent a week of doing that. And, and after that, uh, they were, they said, okay, well, you 11 guys, you 11 Marines, you're going down to Marietta, Georgia. You're going to train up a, a, a company of Marines down there. So we went down there, trained 150 Marines down there and they were like, okay, now you got to go up and spend a week up in Anacostia Navy Yards in Washington, D.C., uh, train another 150 Marines up there and then uh, get ready to go. So that's where we ended uh, what we ended up doing. We ended up spreading the wealth from having 30 Marines who were school trained to do this job. to we, we whittled it down. Well, we, we actually uh, boosted it up to uh, over 300 Marines. So, so yeah, we ended up um, leaving landing in, in Kuwait February the 9th of 2003 and we were one of the very first units to get there and uh, this helped start building the bases that we were on. I'm sure it's a tough thing to get into but you know at what point do you start seeing guys that you're serving with die in combat and, and you have to do this job? Um, when we first got over there it we were kind of lighthearted about it. We were like, okay, this is really cool. Finally, we're on active duty. We're having fun on active duty. And a lot of the other units around us uh, were like, why, how do you get your guys so motivated? And, and, and cause we looked at everything as a game and, and we're, we're a bunch of reservists and we're not used to being active duty. Mm-hmm. So um, we were having a, a, a bunch of, uh, you know, having a good time working out and getting in shape and, um, and we spent like the first month doing that. And then all of a sudden out of the blue, we had a, uh, a helo crash that went down. They had two Blackhawks doing touch and goes in the middle of the night, in the middle of a sandstorm. Um, and one ended up crashing and rolling over and, and all the guys had, had, uh, died in that particular, uh, incident. So, um, at the time with it being peacetime, the, um, the NTSB, the National uh, Transportation Safety Board, they had all of the uh, all of the you know the, they determined who was going to be out there on the scene. So um, my old major ended up going over and said, "Hey, you know, can we join it? We got a bunch of uh, mortuary affairs guys need to get some experience and stuff." And eventually, they let us go out there and help participate in, in working with them. So we worked side by side, cleaning up. It was the very first time that we had worked any kind of scene out of this, and the realization of having a vehicle like a uh, like a Blackhawk crash and 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 uh, burn up was the whole scene was catastrophic. It was something that we were never taught. Something we were seeing things that we you know, have never seen before because in in the, all the World War II manuals it didn't even come close to how how catastrophic this this uh, particular event was. So uh, we got lucky with working with with the NTSB and we were able to pick their brains and really find out um, 
exactly what happens in, in, in a lot of the real world situations. Uh, we were finding out a lot of things that we were never taught. Um, stuff like when, when a lot of these catastrophic scenes, as, just as a helo crash or an airplane crash, and any, anything involving fires, um, they were saying that um, blood crystallizes and it turns and it looks like burned sugar. We were never taught that because we're going out there and, and we're, we're going through and we're chipping away at the stuff that looks like, like sugar, like burned sugar. And we couldn't figure out, me and my guys were looking around, I was like, hey, what the hell is this stuff? And we keep on going. I was thinking it was like some kind of hydraulic fluid or something. And we kept on asking the guy, and the guy was like, well, that's, that's blood that's been uh, boiled over, and it's cooked. And, and you see that in high-temperature high situations. And, and uh, we learned something to this day that, you know, we, that we had never been taught out of all the literature, all the, all the times that we were at the school, nobody ever mentioned that to us. So we, we learned that from it. And we also learned how to find human remains with using a screwdriver. Mm. Um, you just tap, you know, you just end up tapping, um, the item and you can tell a difference between something that is organic or something that is not. Because a lot of these uh, burn situations, a lot of the plastics and stuff that ends up looking like, like uh, bones and stuff, and and you know some of the vehicle parts and stuff, and the, like the cushions and the foams matting and, and and the rubbers and stuff, they they all sounded like um, they all feel like uh, they come close if you look at it. So we were using a screwdriver, and they're showing us how to do that. And if we never had that helicopter crash we would have never uh, been able to do our missions later on in, 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 in on my third tour uh, because what we were seeing on my third tour was so much more catastrophic than, than what we had imagined over even for OIF-1. And but, I, I would imagine like the amount of pressure just because of the fact that you, you want to make sure that everything is kept in as good of condition as, as it possibly can exactly be when right. you do this type of burial because – you know, you're talking about a hero who fought for your country, exactly our country, right. and and there's probably something sacred to that. And and you know, it's it's probably just I would imagine such high pressure to get it right. Yes, um, you know, we I, I I always prided myself, um, even through all my tours and stuff. And I was one of the guys who wanted to get 100 percent of the guys, and then being realistic and on these these scenes. Um, you know, it's very rough to get to look out there and see, but I, I, I wanted to go out and try to do what, the best job I could absolutely do for these guys. Uh, the way that I looked at it is these guys had sacrificed their lives for us, all of us, and it would be a disgrace and dishonor if we didn't try to get 100% of him out of the country in a place that didn't want them there um, and get them home to their families. So um, that's basically essentially is what the book is about and, and how we saw it and how we operated and how we, how we did these things uh, and how we tried to honor them, uh, the guys who, who died for us, and how we honored them to, to do the absolute best job that we could to take care of them. So during this first crash that took place, did you have any relationship with any of those guys? No, no. 
Um, it was an army unit and I really didn't know where, where they were from. It was the very first time that I've seen any kind of, of us dead. The only thing that really, uh, stuck with me is that they were Americans and a, you know, and you hope you never have to bag up any Americans. Um, and it was so much different than, than when you were working inside of a morgue, because that's how we used to, they used to train us is to go out and, and, uh, witness, autopsies or sometimes uh, they'll let you uh, assist in autopsies and and the the thinking and when you're working inside these morgues is in my mind that these guys it was their time to go already mm-hmm. um and it's a sterile environment you know they're at the times they're in a white bag um they're already uh they're already unclothed and so you you see these guys and then had a car accident or they had died of alcohol poisoning or a heart attack or cancer or something on those lines. So you think that this guy already lived his life. Um, it, it wasn't cut short. It, it was his time to go. So I didn't have any kind of guilt or any kind of uh, problems with that. Yeah, it, at first it was kind of gross until you did the, the initial cuts and 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 then after a while it becomes a science experiment it becomes a learning opportunity but when you're working overseas and you you're, you're handling remains of uh US remains and that's when it started sticking with me because you know these guys are just like us they want to go over do a, you know the best job they can do and um and go home and go back home to their families nobody wants to you know die for their country everybody you know wants to go over and kick ass for their country and go home yeah. um but uh you know when you start seeing uh the unit members and and how it's affecting them and you're going through and you're seeing their 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 pictures their uh, the personal items and there's so many things that connects you with that person um or you may know the person you see them at a chow hall that kind of stuff but uh yeah it, it started really sticking with me with the with the uh, remains that we were seeing back in um 03 in particularly because we were thinking okay this once once the shooting war started we're not going to be seeing a, a whole lot of casualties and and as as much as you prepared yourself for it mentally and physically, you don't. One thing that we forgot to prepare ourselves was was uh, emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't know. We didn't really know uh, how to deal with uh, seeing you know the 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 guys that as when when they started you know getting killed in combat. I, I would imagine. So, yeah, it kind of blindsided us. Yeah, I would imagine at some point you end up having to work on a guy that that you personally knew, right? Right. I, that, that was in in uh, my third tour in 2005, where that had happened. Um, and and believe me, it, it wasn't fun. And it was a uh, he, my, that was on my third tour. So at the time. This is in November of 2005, and me and his name was Master Sergeant Angus. He was with uh, the 372nd Hilo Squadron out of uh, out of uh, Camp Pendleton, and he was their EOD um, and staff NCOIC. And uh, and we became friends, 
we would go over and hang out with me and another gunny would go over and hang out with him. And it was a chance to get away from our high stress environment that we were working in with, with our major. And so we'd go and hang out with him and, and the, he had four or five uh, Carl dealerships and a bunch of other businesses that had adopted his unit. So he, they had all sorts of, of junk food and, and all sorts of, you know, like macaroni and cheese and, and you, you, you asked for it, they had it, you know? So, um, yeah, I became friends with him. We ended up, um, working together to make our, our Thanksgiving happen. So my dad mailed me out, um, um, shoot, uh, like a deep fryer. So we're going to deep fry some turkeys Okay. and and he ended up sending uh mess start Angus and him getting a hold of a bunch of burners. And so we had basically our Thanksgiving was with our two units and a, and a couple other units that joined in. And it was just a really great time. And two days after that, on November 26th, um, he got caught up in a, uh, gotten killed by a, uh, by a car bomb. And, uh, that was the very first time that, that I had processed anybody that I was, um, that I, I really knew, knew really well. And, and I was not prepared for it because out of all the hundreds of times that you practice for it and you try to prepare yourself, you hope that would never happen. And when it happened, um, we didn't know how to take it. All of us across the board, all of us inside the mortuary affairs collection point, we didn't know how to take it. Um, so we just did the absolute best job that we could. I would imagine at some point having to do the most morbid of jobs, uh, you know, in the military at this time when, when there's a major war going on, I would think at some point you probably start to question like, why are we here? And and those type of things. Um, I didn't think that when I was over, um, I just looked at it this way. Um, no matter what, we have a job to do. It's Mm -hmm. not my, it's not my business to get into, uh, the policies. Those are for the policymakers. Those are the people that sent us here. Um, I looked at it as, all right, this is our job. How, how best can we do our job? What do we need to change to make it better? Um, I was more of like putting how to make their, our mission work and how to get our job done the best way that we could possibly do it. So I really didn't have a problem uh, with us being there. Um, I just had more of a, um, how do we do our job better to take care of the guys who are here? Um, and, and, uh, now I'm not trying to get wrapped up around sure. why. At, at some point, we will get into the actual American flag thing because I think that that's such yeah. a great story. <clears throat> but first, I'm I'm just wondering as I'm hearing about all this, you know, having to work on bodies of guys who fought for the country and then eventually guys that you did know. At, at what point coming back does the alcohol issue come come into play? Um, it was pretty much maybe three months after I came home, um, maybe four months after I came home. And it was, uh, basically me trying to find, uh, how to suppress my anxieties so I can go to sleep. Um, how to, how to suppress my dreaming, uh, when I close my eyes. Cause the bad thing about being in, in, coming home and, and dreaming 
And, you know, when you, when you finally do fall asleep and uh, to me, I felt like I was trapped in the most horrible of nightmares that I couldn't get out. And it was just basically repeating over and over and over again. And, and I tried drinking so I could take away my anxiety and be able to knock out my dreaming, but it was a double-edged sword because sometimes it would work, but then there's times it wouldn't work. And then I would be. I would drink myself sober, but then I was, you know, everything that I tried avoiding was sitting right here in front of my face. And, um, and, and it became a, a, an everyday thing. Um, I would go to work basically drunk from the night before and, and I would be out there on the street delivering mail, driving vehicles and stuff, being totally drunk from the night before, still, still feeling the after effects. Um, and I, it, that's where everything started feeling like it was out of control. Um, and, and no matter what I did, I did, I couldn't get a handle of what was going on. And I, at the time I felt like I was the only one that was dealing with this stuff that I still had friends that was in the Marines that was still deploying, um, and still going forward. And I felt like I was the one that was broken and I was ashamed of, of being in the situation that I was in. Um, that, and I also forgot to sound so too crazy, but I, I felt like that the dead followed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like I was contaminated by all this death and evil and stuff and everything I was a, a part of everything that I witnessed and stuff when I came home. Um, and that was really one thing that really led me to, to start writing because I did, I couldn't understand what was going on. I needed to get a grasp of what was happening around me or it was happening to me. Yeah. I, I've heard from so many guys on the show that writing was therapeutic for them, which it sounds like it was for you, of course, but I'm wondering like, what else did you do to get over this? Did you have to go to rehab at some point? How did you, how did you deal with the way that you were? I ended up, I didn't have to go to rehab for, for my drinking. Um, I was going intensive cognitive therapy with, with the, with, the, um, a therapist at the VA. And I was lucky that this guy had served over in Iraq as well. And he was with the mental health assessment teams where they were putting them in trailblazers and they were moving them from fob to fob. So he knew exactly what roads I was talking about, what bases I was talking about. Um, and so I got lucky with him and basically he ended up working, to tone down my, my PTSD where it made it manageable and where I didn't feel like I needed to drink as much. Um, and so it kind of took the pressure off of, uh, cause I was drinking for, for basically to, to suppress my anxiety mm-hmm. and, and seeing him with, with therapy, with my PTSD uh, therapy and, and then taking meds to help me with my anxiety. It really helped me get away from wanting to drink as much. Um, I still tip a few back every once in a while, but I don't go nowhere near where I was before. That's good, man. Well, it seems like you found something to to help you through this between writing, between therapy. And I think it's important that when you go through these things, you know, it, it really does build us stronger and then you'll meet other people going through as you said, that extreme of, I don't want to be here. And, and you could say, Hey, I've been there, man. And, and it means a lot more yep. to someone than talking to someone who can't relate. Right. Yeah. When I go over and talk to the other people and I just tell them what worked for me, 
you know, I, I can't give them a magic yeah. uh, bullet to their, their, to their PTSD problems. I, I say that this is what helped me. Um, everybody's different. Everybody has different dynamics, different situations, different upbringings. So what they can be, uh, um, you know, they'd be influenced their, their, the way that they handle things. But I said, this is what I did. And it made me feel better. Um, he said, you can start writing. You don't have to show anybody, uh, if you just wanted to keep it your thing. But for me, it, it was a, a way of, I wouldn't say overcoming it, but it made it where it took the pressure out of those, those situations, those, uh, uh, this, feelings and everything. So I ended up, you know, it made it man, manageable enough where I could talk about it, where I could write about it, where I can, um, exp- you know, show my wife why I would have a problem around, um, um, Thanksgiving every year, Yeah, you know, and, and cause there was no frame of reference for her when I came home. And I could honestly say that writing also saved my marriage because there's no frame of reference. Uh, she can turn on the news and see it on the news, but it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really fully describe what it is like to be there or you can turn on a movie and that's not going to do it. Mm-hmm. But she was able to pick up um, different situations like the day I got blown up and, and she can pick it up and, and understand, uh, you know, okay, what had happened, you know, when we were out there and why I have anxieties uh, of when cars would pass us by Um you know, in different situations, like when, when Master Sergeant Angus got killed, um, you know, and how I was, I couldn't talk about it for a long time, but I, once I was able to write it down, she read it and she goes, she could understand it. So it gave our, our marriage a, a second chance. I hate to say this, but, um, getting blown up wasn't the worst thing that happened to me. You know, it was, it was the things off of my third tour that, that really took the cake. Um, getting blown up. I, yeah, I thank my lucky stars. God was looking out for us that day. Um, I shouldn't be here, uh, as close, as big as that bomb was as close as I was to it. Um, but you know, I, I, I thank God that, that he was looking out for us. Mm-hmm. But like I said, um, my hangups wasn't so much getting blown up. It, it was dealing the, 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 with the survivor's guilt of, of all the guys that we had processed, um, getting to know their stories as you're going through their pockets and losing, um, some friends as we're over there. Uh, that's where most of my, my PTSD and, and a lot of my guilts are, um, you know, it's kind of weird to say that getting blown up. Oh yeah. It wasn't a much of a big deal. It was a big deal, yeah. but, um, there was, there are bigger deals that I've, maybe I just haven't had a chance to really, um, I'm working through the third tour stuff before I get down to the second tour stuff. But it, to me, uh, getting blown up wasn't as big of a deal as, as, uh, as, you know, losing those other guys that we did on, on my third deployment. Yeah. And everybody's going to process different parts of their life different than others. And I mean, you've had to process so much. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'd love to get into though, actually the flags on the guys when they come back home and, and the story you were telling me as we discussed this last night and, and the reason okay. that you see the flag draped over the coffin on, on the cover of the book, which by the way is a great illustration. Oh, thank you so much. Um, it, the story really begins in 2004 when I was on my second tour, when I got blown up. Um, the story is that, that, 
I was attached to uh, weapons company, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. Um, and, and my job then, coming from a, a military police company, they were using me and, and four other Marines to, be, um, to teach Iraqi police how to do their jobs. And so we were operating over in Haditha, Iraq. And uh, being with 3-4, I ended up meeting a lot of guys that were there. Um, uh, one of them was, uh, first Lieutenant Oscar Jimenez, um, and then, you know, Lance Corporal Tory Gray and a couple other, you know, other guys. So I got to eat MREs, get to meet them, talk to them, that kind of thing as we're, we're moving up to, to the dam. And, um, and then when I get blown up in March of 2004, I get medevaced out and had to go out and get my skin grafts and, and everything like that. Um, and then, um, I was on my convalescent leave in April of 2004, and that's when they hung the guys over on the bridges over there, the Blackwater guys on the bridges, and um, that's when all these Marine units started moving into Fallujah and did uh, Operation Vigilant Resolve, which did the first push into uh, Fallujah. And when I was home, I didn't pay any attention to what was going on in the news. I figured I almost got killed. Um, I need to, to dedicate this time that I'm on convalescent leave with my family. So I knew that flu just kicked off, but I wasn't paying any attention to it. And so when I came back to, when I got sent back to uh, 29 Palms, um, I found out that a lot of the guys that I knew had, had gotten killed. Uh, one of them was uh, Oscar Jimenez. And, um, and I thought that, that, um, if I ever had a chance to honor them, you know, I, this is what I wanted to do. So f- fast forward to uh, 2005, and now I'm a staff sergeant, and I'm in charge of all mortuary affairs operations in a place called Altakadam, Iraq, which is a big logistical hub between Fallujah and Ramadi. And, um, and so the very first day that we were doing a rip toa, that uh, we're watching the unit that we were replacing, um, uh, watch them process. And I wanted to make sure my guys could stomach this kind of work and all that kind of stuff. So we're watching these guys as they're working. And it was a U.S. Army major out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. He was a, a reservist that was out there uh, looking at the roads and, and trying to fill in potholes or, or the, the craters that was left over from the, from the IEDs. And as he went, walked up to one, he, they ended up blowing one up and, and getting him. So um, they were processing him. And, and at the very end, I noticed that they took a, uh, an American flag straight out of a cardboard box, placed it on top of the transfer case, which is the, the air, the mobile air coffin, which is air pressurized and stuff. They put them in, in there and they put the, the, the flag on top and they just tied a white cord around it. And that was it. It still had all its creases from when it was left in the box. It still had the threads all over it. Um, and the loose threads and stuff. And, and I thought that it was messed up that we were sending guys home this way. Um, it was, there's nothing against those guys that we were replacing because this was the way it's always been done. And I thought that, uh, that it was totally messed up that the guys that I knew with three, four, uh, who came through that very building to go home, um, was they were being sent home, were sent home with transfer cases that with their flags looking that way. If that is the flag that is eventually goes to his loved ones, to his kids, to his 
his family, you know, his wife and, and his parents. I, I want that flag to look its absolute best. To me, it was a, uh, I, we needed to honor them the best we could because they died for us. So at that moment, um, you know, whenever we took over, I went down to the PX and bought their only can of starch they had in the PX. Their only can of starch, their only ironing board, and their only iron. Because, you know, you're not supposed to use starch in combat. And so I, I took that, and the next day I showed up, there's two cans of starch. I bought that, then next day was four days. So every day I was going down there doubling it up. And eventually the lady was like, um, what are you doing? You're the only one that's buying starch. And why are you buying starch? And I say, I'm ironing uh, and, and starching and ironing every American flag, man. I, ma'am, I, I told her that I work in mortuary affairs and, um, and that we're, we were doing that for all the guys that we were sending home. Um, so what had happened was we, we ironed and starched all these American flags, and I came up with a way to fold, uh, a new way of fold, uh, to put it onto the transfer case. Because the way it was before, you had a danger of the flag touching the ground. And so what we did first is we tied a white cord around the transfer case with two slip knots so we can tighten it and and loosen it at will. And then we laid uh, the crisply iron flag on top and tucked in the both sides, then pulled it taut, and then we we tucked it in on either ends. And um, so we we did all, all of our remains that way. And we got it down to a point where um, we had a a um, a major in the in the uh, Marine Corps who was picking up the remains at night in his C-130. He comes up to me uh, and he goes, "I want to let you know how much it means to us to take these guys home because you're the only ones in the entire country who are who has uh, who irons and starches the flag and has this way. And it really means a lot to us to see that you guys go above and beyond know what is asked of you. Um, so flash forward, uh, 2009, I'm home. I get a phone call from one of my Marines, um, Sergeant Kinley. And he goes, uh, Hey, Hey bus. There's, um, I want to let you know that there was this brigadier general at, over in Ramstein and him and his entourage were watching all these remains coming off the back of a C-141. They're standing there saluting, and the first one comes off, and it's done the old way. The second one comes off, and it's done the old way. And the third one comes off, and it's done your way. And he goes, damn it, I knew Marines did that. So I'm going to find out who, who did that, and I'm going to let them know what it means to me and, and to my entourage. So he ended up calling my old chief warrant officer over in Anacostia. And uh, she was like, yes, sir, we call that the Bustler Method, uh, Staff Sergeant Buster started that in 2005, and we've been doing them uh, for every remains that, they, that the Marines have been doing ever since. So he goes, um, that means um, it meant a lot to us, and to see that we're doing that for our, our Marines, because from now on to the end of the Marine Corps, when the country no longer needs a Marine Corps, that every remains that, that the Marine Corps does, this is the way they're going to come home. And so the Marine Corps adopted it then. So then, um, so did the Army, then the Air Force, and then then the, the Navy, and then so so then on, it's now the standard. So if you see any remains that are coming home from uh, from battlefields across the world, this is uh, this is what uh, the flag is. So if you were paying attention to when Benghazi happened, um, those those four remains that were coming back home were done in this style. Um, if you look at uh, the guys are coming home now from North Korea, 
with the American flags on it, how it's been crisply ironed and starched and, and, and it's been placed on top, that's my fold. Um, I never got any accolades from it. I never got an attaboy, no thank yous, no medals or nothing, but I didn't do it for that. I did it for Oscar Jimenez and I did it for Tory Gray and all the guys that I knew with three, four, but also um, all the people who, who had sacrificed their lives since then. Um, they deserve to be sent home in the best fashion that we could bestow upon them. And, um, and, and I'm so happy that it, it, caught on and that I had my little 15 minutes of fame and, and, and making sure it happened that way. Yeah. I think that's an excellent story. And to see that the legacy of, of what you decided to do, um, has remained into this day. So I think that's, that's actually a good way to wrap this up. Um, because as we've said before, you know, this, we, we've had so many authors on who have these, Stories that are just like, you know, there's the negative, but there's also like these great times that they had serving their country. And this book, I think it's safe to say, is a little darker or a lot darker than most of those. But I think the fact that you got to do something that that is going to have a legacy that carries on is something to be really proud of. So once again, the book is No Tougher Duty, No Greater Honor, A Memoir of a Mortuary Affairs Marine. Uh, entirely self-published, which I was talking to you about on the phone last night, is really the way to go about things. There's a lot of these. I, we've talked about it on a previous show before, but these like fake publishers out there that are having people pay to put a book out when you could do it your own on on your own on Amazon. You just right. have to have the motivation to write the thing, get a great cover like you did, and uh, you know not be ashamed to put your story out there. Uh, on top of right. that, a portion of the proceeds for each book go to benefit the uh, EOD Warrior Foundation, Semper Fi Fund, as well as WWIA, um, which is great. I, so I think it all comes around that, that beyond just your experience is going to be able to give back to other guys who have seen some terrible things yeah. in combat. You're also giving back with this book. Yep. Yeah. Um, Two of those, uh, the Separate Five Fund and Wounded Warriors and Action Foundation, both of those are, are charities that, that I have benefited from, um, as long as well as a bunch of other guys that I know. Um, the EOD Warrior Foundation uh, that was chosen by the wives of, of the Master Sergeant Angus and another uh, gentleman, um, Staff Sergeant Richardson, um, I, I asked them, uh, their wives, to say, which uh, charity would you want me to donate? proceeds to and they both chose EOD Warrior Foundation because they helped them uh when they found out that their uh their husbands had passed. So um yeah we donate to those those three charities there um because they're outstanding and and I stand by them. That's great. And and then beyond that if people want to follow you on Twitter it's bustler underscore C. The website is no tougher duty.com. The book is available on Amazon no tougher duty no greater honor, a memoir of a mortuary affairs Marine. I mean, even though we've discussed a lot in this past hour, there's a lot more to be seen in this book. So pick the book up, support a, uh, a veteran and support these great charities. Uh, anything else you, you want to mention before we, uh, we call this a show? Yeah. I also have it on, on audible as well. And, um, and I think that's about it. Yeah, you were telling me about the guy yeah. who did it for the Audible, which is a pretty cool story. Yeah, yeah John Pruden, he's an outstanding guy. He is the uh, the same narrator who had done 
um, American Sniper, and he's the same one who's done uh, Carnivore. He, he's done over 200 books, and and actually, he only lives like. 20 minutes from my house, which is, which is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we became friends. And so we hang out every once in a while. Yeah. He did the book. So that's awesome. That's cool. I mean, if you have a guy like that doing the audio book, it's safe to say it's a, it's a really well done audio book. Um, and, yep. and it's great that you were like hands on and got to choose the guy who, who read it. Yep. Yep. So yeah, everything's great, man. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy with how everything's turning out. Believe me, being self-published is a lot of work. But I like having the, the, the having the hands on and 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 having the pushed it into the directions that I want it to go instead of having somebody say say this is where it needs to go and and then not really working out for me. Yeah, I'm sure, man. So, and and it's it's a tough job to do. And and if it's just you know a first self published novel, it's not exactly going to make you a millionaire. It's it's really oh, just no. like a labor of love. I'm I'm actually wondering, like beyond that, are you still? working at the post office or are you doing something else at this point? No, uh, when I came home, I, I was rated at a hundred percent, uh, total and permanent. And so that afforded me the chance to, to really write. And so now I'm finding, uh, that I really like to write. So I want to get this out there and basically making money on its own. And I'm thinking about maybe picking up and, and becoming a ghost writer for other people as well. Um, there's, um, big, the cool thing about this community is that you meet guys all the time with really great stories of, you know, resiliency and, 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 um, and, and being tough and tenacious and not letting their, their, um, handicap. I wouldn't even say I like to say handicap their situations. You know, I got a friend of mine who lost both his legs in Afghanistan and you can't slow him down. You can't stop him. Yeah. And, uh, and and there's a lot of great stories of of dedication and selfless service. And, and, and so, yeah, I like to participate in that and help get some of these, their stories out. That's awesome. All right. Well, appreciate you coming on. If you're ever in New York, hit us up and maybe we could have you in studio. Absolutely. Uh, but this this was great, and and I uh, I do wish you continued success, and I hope a lot of our listeners pick so this up because it's it's without a doubt a very unique book. Thank you so much. Yeah, great having Chris on there. Uh, as always, please follow us on Twitter, on Instagram at Softrep Radio. I have that great video up on Instagram of uh, Jim West or just like casually talking here in the studio and he's waving around his knife and demonstrating and, and the way he works a knife is pretty amazing just as he's casually talking. So if you haven't seen that video yet, go to the Instagram at SoftRep Radio. Uh, as I always mentioned, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's going to help us to get some more great guests on, get our visibility up. Uh, you know, the fact that we had Hoist Gracie on last show, we have a lot of big names out there who are enthusiastic uh, of, uh, when they get to come on here. So I love seeing that. And uh, I love seeing that you guys continue to check us out uh, every week, twice a week. It means a lot to me. And if you have any questions or, or any comments for the show, shoot over an email. Uh, and that's softrep.radio at softrep.com. Check out the new site, thenewsrep.com. Uh, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Ian Scotto. And we'll be back next show with Ernie Emerson and Jim West. That's going to be a good one. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. 
For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at softreprepradio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.